This is a journey into sound. Brought to you in living color on WGDR. I'm Tony Lepstein. It's the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. Lying on your back in the grass, you can't see a thing except for the clear blue sky, a few cottonwood clouds, Higher and higher in the great dome of the sky, filling it with song. Higher and higher, filling it with song. Filling it with song. They sound quite mad, don't they? It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I see God. How do you like that? Why, that's preposterous. Thank you very much. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. Good morning, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fine. Do you want to uh, introduce what we're doing, at least to get that set up? Well, I'll introduce you, and you can introduce what we're doing, since you're the one doing it. <laughs> How's Sounds that? great. So, my guest is Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul. He's been my guest on the show five times so far over the last couple of months and it's been such a pleasure to talk with him and he had a new idea well I shouldn't say a new idea because we've been kind of going back and forth and doing this to some degree but um, he well he'll tell you what he has up his sleeve well as I was corresponding with Tonio I thought it would really be a fun idea 
in which I got to be the interviewer, Antonio got to be the guest, because I realized in our previous conversations, Antonio certainly has as much experience and knowledge and wisdom as anything that, that, that I've heard from anybody else. So I thought this would be a great chance to bring that forward. So let's get started. Here's the jumping point that I've been sort of playing with in the last day since we talked about doing this. Uh, there's a mainstream, of course, out there, and this is where a lot of interviews take place. And, and those people that are in the mainstream have usually a journalistic background, so it's really quite grounded. Then, of course, there's the fringe, and the fringe tends to be the place where culture has its all possibilities for change. And you, as an interviewer, have a very interesting you know, curiosity about the fringe, but you bring a mainstream groundedness to interviewing those people in the fringe. Can you talk about that and how that came about? Are you saying that there's no groundedness in the fringe? No, I'm not saying that <laughs> at all. I'm saying that that it's all it can be all over the map in the fringe. Of course, it can be all over the map in the mainstream as well. Mm -hmm. But you bring a lovely groundedness to approaching the fringe, which it's not like it necessarily legitimizes it, but it, it really makes it very presentable to anybody who would be listening to that interview. Mm -hmm. That's actually a wonderful question, a wonderful thing to investigate. First off, for me, I have always been very, very interested in alternative perspectives because growing up, um, I had an artist for a father and he had very unusual friends who were coming over to visit at times. And I particularly remember around the age of nine and ten, after returning from a year of living in Spain, that he had his studio next to my bedroom. And there was no door in the doorway. So it was an open doorway between my room and his room. And he would often be painting for extended periods of time, for like days with virtually no sleep. And I would, at night, I would be sleeping. And during that time, and, and I'm actually making this potential connection for the first time, um, this was a phase of my life when I was having these very unusual, strange, powerful, hypnagogic and hypnopompic experiences. And I never connected them to the possibility that it might have been influenced by what was going on in the room next door. And I'm not sure that there was, but you never know. And when your father was painting, did he have other visitors that were communicating with him while in the process of painting, or was he for the most part alone? He was alone. However, big however, and again, this is new however stuff. Considering the interview that I did with Corinne Grillo, the angel experiment woman, yeah. she talks about how we have what's sometimes referred to as guardian angels that are with us all the time. They're always with us. Mm -hmm. And there's 
there's a potential that they may be mediating some kind of unknown elements into our lives. Mm -hmm. So when you think about our relationships with other people who also have these guardian angels, then there can be some potentially complex unknown elements and things happening in these relationships and relationship dynamics that we are not aware of. It's interesting because it's almost as if as this process was happening between your room and your father's studio, the guardian angel, you know, was taking on the aspect of the angel of fate as well. Yes, yes, potentially. I don't know. I really don't know. But one thing, as you, I think, would know, because you're an artist, you're a musician, photographer, um, artists are prone to being influenced by what is called the muse. And I suspect that the notion of angel and the notion of muse may not necessarily be separate and distinct elements or energies. So while I was sleeping in my bed next door to my father while he's painting, and while he's painting, he may be being influenced by elements outside of our quote-unquote known mainstream world. There's two questions that arise for me. The first is, what was the subject matter of your father's paintings? Um, he, did, he did mandalas, complex, detailed, very colorful, mandala-like in the sense that, for example, one painting, I actually remember like waking up in the middle of the night watching him painting and I remember there was one huge rectangular painting that he was working on had a blue background and he was painting these shapes on it a pattern of fairly uniform shapes so it was this overall effect and he's painted numerous mandalas as well with these very detailed like one of them had a sun as the center of it, and the sun was painted out of individual flames, like thousands of individual flames carefully painted in slightly different shades of yellow and gold and colors in that realm. So he was very detailed, very immersed in that process to the point where, I mean, he would paint for hours and hours and hours without stopping. He was so completely immersed. And that there was a powerful kind of energetic, what some people might call a, a creative channeling. And if I was in the room next door, particularly as a young child, I would imagine that I would be receptive to that energy and therefore influenced by it to some degree, at least. So, oh, no question. And I'm, what I'm wondering is, you know, the mandala has obviously very strong spiritual connections. So that's fascinating in itself that if those energies are having an impact on you, and he's not doing this casually, like you said, there was this real intensity about it. Well, these weren't connected to any spiritual tradition. There was no 
no symbology of that type in it. These were things that were coming from within him or beyond him, but they did not conform to any pre-existing, let's say, spiritual or religious or mandala-ish notions. And I understand that. It's still, though, and this is, again, my, my perspective more as an artist, I guess, that when one is coming up with those things, even though, for instance, I may not have a certain background, say, in photography, I'm calling in certain energies. Yes. And it seems like he was calling in certain energies in this very unique, idiosyncratic way, and that that clearly had an impact on you as well. Yes. And because he's so immersed, the energies that he's calling in, they're emerging from this continually unfolding and emerging process that he is completely immersed in and that he's not necessarily consciously invoking these energies but that they are unfolding and emerging spontaneously in response to everything he's doing and continuing to do and that's to me the perfect artistic process you're like the poet that already knows for instance how the poem is going to end when they begin writing the poem that's probably not so much in the terrain of what i would consider more true poetry where it's always an exploration and this is the beauty about your conversations when you're doing the magical mystery tour i don't have a sense when i'm listening to you that you already have a predetermined endpoint of where you want to go and so these lovely conversations go about in other words you know, I could be asking you the typical questions of, so, Tonio, when, when did the magic of radio enter your life, and what was your background to get you there, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's a whole other thing, which is, to me, a little more interesting, of how did this thing evolve in terms of, say, you becoming the person who you are, and then hence the interviewer, so that these very interesting conversations take place because they're in exploration, and i.e., just like a jazz improvisation, where will it go in that moment? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and that's one of the most important aspects of the way I do my shows, and also about the way I approach life in general, and hopefully the way we all approach life in general, that we're approaching it as an open doorway of possibility rather than a set, concretized, well, here I'm going to use the word goal, which I think Westerners are so <laughs> enamored of, yeah. you know, and which I think can be so limiting. So this gets back to what you first asked about, my, my relationship to the fringe or, or how I bring a groundedness to to what is outside of the main the more narrow mainstream perspective and that's because i am so interested in and fascinated by utterly utterly fascinated by things not everything but the possibilities that lie outside of the mainstream and so as i encounter new things and often, or sometimes at least, some of these new things are w way out there, and they don't fit within 
the established norms of mainstream culture, understanding. So at that point, one has the choice to either believe in it or to disbelieve in it or, and this is a very big or, to play in that in-between space of not knowing. And that's the space that I find to be particularly rich. And it's within that space that we can spend as much time as is necessary to do the work of grounding or attempting to ground our relationship, our new emerging, evolving relationship with the realm of the unknown and the realm beyond the quote-unquote mainstream that some people might consider to be fringe or fringy. And I have gone through lots of experiences of buying into things, hook, line, and sinker, without much questioning, and then kind of you know falling flat on my face with it and getting busted for it in various ways, whether it's by people outside of me busting me or just discovering new understanding, new information that contradicts it and basically demonstrates that what I previously thought was real wasn't. And so that has instilled in me a desire to do a deeper and more rigorous inquiry into things that I encounter, including myself and the things that have been part of the construction of my own worldview and the world that I live in, which, of course, is a worldview. So tell me, was this a gradual process, realizing that when you did participate in more the mainstream kind of paradigm and getting burned, that it was a gradual process of like, no, I really don't need to go back there. Was there an actual turning point where you say, I really just can't you know, be doing it that way any longer? What I was referring to was being burned by believing in things that were outside of the mainstream. Oh, okay. Now, I, I grew up outside of the mainstream. I, my parents views, many of their views, were informed by perspectives and information that they were connected with and people that they were connected with who were outside of the mainstream and outside of typical American, the narrow range of that realm of experience. So I would say that I was not seduced by the mainstream the way most people are because I wasn't brought up in it. Can to you the give degree. An example of burned with something from outside of the mainstream. Well, I'll give you a, a rough, not terribly specific example because I don't have one, but let's say listening to a talk on YouTube, which is chock full of bizarre, otherworldly perspectives, yeah. some, some of which undoubtedly are true and real and many of which are undoubtedly either complete fabrications or, or just delusions, or perhaps they are just entering other dimensional realms or somewhat 
other dimensional realms where that perspective may be real, but it's not real within the context of this dimension. Yes. So when I encounter things like that that do interest me, I do some research on it to see whether it has been looked into by other people and proven to be false. And often there is no proof one way or another. Sometimes you just have to listen to the people who are attempting to debunk it or mm-hmm. claim that they're debunking it, and then also listen to other people who, who claim to have experience that corroborates it, and then weigh the entire spectrum together and make an intelligent and thoughtful assessment for myself, which is the way I've learned to approach life and things in the world is to come to my own educated opinions, my own best discernments. So there seems to be a vibrant curiosity, and that's what's really quite lovely about your show, a vibrant curiosity about all of these things that that we're talking about, particularly out on the fringe, and wanting to at least make people aware of them and I, and I think that's the, the quality I was mentioning earlier concerning your interviews is that there's the groundedness that you bring because, you know, I've had that, you know, when, when I've been interviewed in the past where people want to immediately, say, debunk the idea of the soul, something like that, just right from, right from the very beginning. And there's no curiosity whatsoever. It's really like, no, we are going to hold on to this mainstream even if my life depends on it. And I also want to stress that this curiosity is not just idle curiosity. It's born out of having lots of experience in those other realms, direct experience that were not not delusional, not based on psychedelic drugs or, or things like that, but actual direct experience conscious adult experience as well as conscious childhood experience Mm -hmm. and those have absolutely confirmed without any doubt whatsoever that there are realms of possibility in this very world that are way beyond what our very narrow mainstream perspective accepts to be possible or real Yes. Do you have a selection process for people that you're choosing to interview on your show? I do it by feel, by what, yeah. what resonates for me and what interests me. But one thing that's really important to me is I'm not necessarily trying to expose people to these individual things. The overall goal that I have really is to inspire people to open their mind more and more and more. And I don't mean open their mind willy-nilly to just believe in anything out there. I mean to intelligently and with a great sense of responsibility to open their mind to the infinite realm of possibility but keep their wits about them and be skeptical, be highly skeptical, not in the sense of doubting that it's real, but highly skeptical in the sense that, and to me, the true definition of skepticism is to be open-minded 
but always questioning and investigating and inquiring to determine how real they are or how valid they may be for us as individuals and at the same time how they may be valid and of value to others around us. And this is, I think, what's so beautiful about your show. There's a tendency out there, because I've listened to, of course, other shows, where the interviewer, the host, tends to really want to just reinforce whatever the guest happens to be bringing to the table. And you're doing this very thing you just mentioned, something a little bit different, which is what makes it that much more interesting for me. There's not necessarily a reinforcement because you're just asking good questions really solid questions. Well, that's what I'm trying to do. So, a couple nights ago, there's a new documentary about Ram Dass, and the name of the documentary is Becoming Nobody. And there's a lot of archival footage in there, and there's many great little pieces with that archival footage. But one in particular, he was talking about all the times that he had experimented with different psychedelics, different drugs, and he had this aspiration that every time he got high, he wanted to see how he could maintain that high even without doing the drugs. And he realized after a while that there was something futile about that. And he realized it was no longer bliss was what he was after, that his real aspiration was for freedom. And it seems to me you, in your own very idiosyncratic way, have found a very similar place in terms of, and I hear that in your interviews, and my guess is it must pervade through your life. Can you speak to that? Um, That is so beautiful. I, I am so in alignment with that. If there was a goal to my life, it is freedom. And I think the the understanding of freedom is a continually evolving experience because it's like peeling away the layers of the onion. You only know the experience of freedom to the degree that you've experienced it. And I think we can, most of us at least, can keep going deeper and deeper into that experience and depth of freedom because there's so many layers of beliefs and structures that we've created and that our culture and society have created through time and the the kind of gravitational influence of the people around us who are similarly indoctrinated and carrying the weight and influence of, of those beliefs, personal and cultural. And you know, that freedom, I think, is represented by the fact that when I listen to your show, it's like opening up a menu at a restaurant, and there are all these choices. So that, say, for a more mainstream kind of interview show, you know, I can almost anticipate, you know, what, what's going to happen because, in essence, it's just going to be a regurgitation of whatever the author has written or whatever the topic happens to be. And it's just a reinforcement. But I listen to your show. It's like opening that menu. It's like, look at all these choices that you keep bringing yet another sort of like another channel for the television, you know, to open up and the listener gets a chance to explore. Yes, and I also do mainstream topics on my show, but I try to engage the author, the people I'm speaking with, to bring the subject as much to life through 
the lens of their own personal passion or interest. And before I do an interview, I will go online to listen to them talk, to see how they sound and how they will sound on the radio, to see if they're alive and and if they would be enjoyable to listen to. Even if their work is fascinating, if they're terrible speakers, I will usually decline the interview. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, if, if there was someone who you would really like, if you, if you had a choice of anybody who is alive today to interview, who might that be? God, I have no idea. I, I've interviewed so many people now that it's kind of democratized the feel for me because I've, I think I've come to realize that often I have the most wonderful conversations with the most unsuspecting people. So in other words, celebrity has no real hold on you. Absolutely. I've, you know, I've never been lured by celebrity. That's, that's great. I mean, that's to great. some degree, like with, with spiritual teachers in my early days, I was susceptible to some of that allure. But even then, I had learned to question things deeply enough that um, that, that didn't last very long, which is, which is I'm so grateful for. But you say that question is something that, that is just part of the fabric of who you are, or is this something that you had developed over time? Um, I think it's been developed, but it was also instilled in me, because my father... He always encouraged me to read and to approach things intelligently, to be thoughtful about things. So he didn't tell me what to think, but he told me to think and to think deeply and to think responsibly. I think that's, that's the essence of it. I mean, he didn't, use, he didn't use terminology like that. And because he was communicating with a child, I don't remember how he did it, but it was something that was instilled in me over a long period of time. I don't think he ever lectured me, but he would encourage me to read. And being a child, the things that I wanted to read and enjoyed reading when I was really young were comic books. So he never discouraged me from reading comic books because mm. he knew that would, be, that would be like a gateway drug, essentially. Right? <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. Well, and it seems like there is this very natural evolution. I've always liked the idea that if we can maintain as a, you know, individual human being, this idea of a childlike curiosity about the world, about whatever's going on. And, and I tend to see that people will have kind of, you know, it'll atrophy as people get older. You know, that they'll, they'll be just sort of stuck in their whatever belief set, wherever that was created, and then just hang out there forever. But you have evolved into from, you know, the childlike thing is still there, which is what's so beautiful, because there's an innocence about that. Not a naivete, but an innocence. And you put it in an in, in adult context of, oh, well, I can do a little bit of research here, I can do whatever. And that's the sense I have when I hear your interviews, is that there's been some research done prior to so that it's an informed interview rather than just winging it, even though there's certain, there's certain lovely aspects of winging it as well. Well, actually, I would say there's definitely an element of naivete in me and in what I do and the way I approach things. And I'm always 
working with that because as a human being, I'm susceptible to all of the positive and negative tendencies that exist within all of us. And I consider it my job to work with all of those things and to do it as consciously and as responsibly as possible. And I'm failing all the time in that process, but I just don't want to overly romanticize the notion that I'm like in any way, shape or form idealized or romanticize what I'm doing or how successful I am at what I'm doing. Because I, I, find, I find that I fail a lot and, and I cringe at things that I say sometimes or things that I miss that just seem so obvious, you know, afterwards. I don't know if I would necessarily call that naivete, but we don't need to decide. That's not the naivete, but the naivete is, is a perspective that can pop up at times that I guess what, what I'm trying to say is that all of these things are, are present and they can take over or become the dominant effect in the way I approach something. And I do a lot of self-inquiry in relation not only to myself, but in relation to myself, in relation to the world around me, so that hopefully I can recognize when I'm being overly naive in the way I'm approaching something. So at the end of any particular interview, do you, again, let's go back to feeling, that do you feel that there's sometimes where 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 you feel like there's an opportunity that's been missed or in other times where it's like, oh gosh, that really happened? Absolutely. Both of those things. And I know that in your interviews that, I mean, I feel like this was with a lot of relationships in my own life, that we can only go so far as the other person is willing to go. And I think I've heard a few interviews where it was clear that, for instance, the author of a book would just really want to sort of just retell things that were happening in the book and you would still be asking good questions but it was still in essence a retelling of a book versus say like the engagement with with cal grillo from the angel experiment she was really quite vibrant and was really willing because she's already just by the nature of of her book really willing to go to some very interesting places and one of the things i try to do from the beginning of my interviews with people is to let them know that I'm really interested in them and what they're most passionate about and that I'm looking for the magic that can happen in the relationship between us in the moment. Yeah, yeah even, even if it is a limited scope that a writer may have, have done in their particular book to still find some sparks in there. Yes. And if you're wondering what the hell's going on here. I'm being interviewed by um, Rick Halterman, author of Curriculum of the Soul. And this interview was recorded right before, immediately before Thanksgiving. So let's enlarge this a little bit, Tonio. This clearly is just one sliver of the life of Tonio Epstein. How does this passion that you have towards interviews because you know to me it isn't just that you know you happen to be a good interviewer but how does this show up elsewhere in your life in terms of looking for that freedom looking for that connection looking for that kind of imagination that brings these things alive um i'm not exactly sure how to 
answer that, but I would say that I've been working on, you know, in my life, I've done over 40 years of spiritual practice, some of it very intensive, to better inform myself of how to live and how to free myself in order to be able to live more freely and more spontaneously and more naturally. And so what I'm doing with these interviews is really just a reflection of what I'm doing within myself. I would say that this work I do with my radio show, these interviews that I do, this is a way that I counterbalance much of the rest of my life. I'm not an overly social person. I'm, I consider myself to be an introvert, and I enjoy silence. And I know that you have an equal appreciation of that. Yes, and there's another piece in there, at least for me, and I think it shows up for you as well, which is in that silence, I can basically quiet the mind. And it's not like I'm trying to impose, you know, like say, mind shut up, that kind of thing. Just quiet the mind enough so that these larger energies can start to interact with whatever might be happening with me. And all I know is whenever I go out in nature, as an example, that whatever I've started with whatever's going on in my head, in my body, at the beginning of a hike, is always altered by the end of that hike. Yes. Never the same. And that, to me, is the great magic of silence. Is silence is the great, unfathomably fantastic portal into the great mystery of all that is and all that is possible. In fact, isn't it Rumi who said that silence is the language of God? I would say that silence not only is the language of God, but it is the doorway to all of that which one might pathetically attempt to characterize with the term God, because we cannot even begin to fathom the infinite expanse. And that's one of the reasons why I hate the term God, because it's a symbol. It's a symbol for something that is so far beyond anything we can conceive of. And I was actually reflecting on this this morning, how in the Jewish tradition, there's the injunction against worshiping idols. And mm. idols, of course, are symbols. Yes. And I was thinking about how language, language is a codification of symbols. And in our culture, we tend to lose I actually, I would say that in our culture, we have, as a culture, lost our connection to the reality that language, that the symbols, the codified symbol, symbology of language has attempted to describe and given us the ability to communicate with each other about. And we have fallen prey or we have been seduced to believing that the symbols are the reality, that the intellectual understanding of the universe, the world, and our experience is the reality, and to discount our feeling experience and our direct experience. You know, you're, you're speaking beautifully to, 
you know, what I call the literal, the analytical, the two-dimensional world in a sense. And, you know, there are two short little quotes. One, I know it's the poet Marie Howe in an interview had once said, poems are like spells, which I thought was a great doorway to this terrain that you're, you're speaking to right now. And then there's the end of a Jane Kenyon poem where the gist of the poem is actually dying and going to the other side. And the last line of the poem is, and God, as promised, proves to be mercy clothed in light. And there's that metaphor, you know, that spell that shows up for me that I can't put my hands on it. I can't really, you know, I can't grab it like I could grab a chair or something like that. But I'm just lit up when I read words like that. And, and I think that's the experience that you're referring to. Yes. And I think we could spend an infinite number of lifetimes having experiences that help us formulate metaphors to help us understand the nature of quote-unquote God and yet still never get to that place. You're still not coming close. Exactly. It's, <laughs> it's like so, taking the metaphor of the blind men and the elephant to yes. the infinite extreme. Yes, exactly. So since we're in this very interesting terrain about spirituality, tell me, because I know that you have done a fair amount of work internally, and here I am as the interviewer, if you were to describe where the edge is in your life right now, well, first, I don't even know if, if you'd be comfortable talking about that, but if you were to comfortable talking about that, how might you describe that? I don't understand your question. You, you said the edges. Um, you know, the edge is the place where we're struggling. Oh, I see. The place where we're really at the edge of our comfort zone. And where is it? You know, like, I know in the past, for me, for instance, the edge always showed up in relationships because I would always find myself at a loss because I didn't have the tools. And now that I have the tools, I don't know if that would be an edge or not until I got back into a relationship again. Is there a place for you where something keeps showing up where it's like, hmm, haven't really quite figured out a way to navigate this one. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, this is something that has very recently been emerging for me in relation to my age and the way that my physical body is changing and how I'm noticing how my body feels and how certain parts of my body feel less invulnerable, less agile, less fluid, less transparent. Remember when we were young, we didn't experience limitation in our body much. We felt pretty light and free and able to do almost anything we wanted to. Mm -hmm. But now as we're getting older, I think most of us recognize how we are no longer able to do things the same way we were when we were younger. And one of the things that I'm encountering are these sensations in my body that bring up fear, like fear that there may be some disease or, or physical degeneration going on inside me that could engender suffering and pain. And pain and suffering have always been things that I have found to be very difficult to to make peace with in the moment. Those are the areas where I have 
encountered the greatest resistance in my experience. And, and tell me, in terms of just the history of your own physical body, have you ever had trauma, broken bones, you know, you know had, say, appendix removed, anything like that? I broke my leg when I was a teenager. I have not had surgery. I've sprained my ankle numerous times. I jammed my knee once, which was actually the most physically excruciating pain I've ever had in my life. I had a back injury, which was also excruciatingly painful, particularly for the couple of weeks after. But what's scariest are the unknown possibilities of pain and suffering. And knowing that as I get older, that it could become a more prevalent thing. And that scares me. And that's something that I, I have not come to terms with. It's a fairly new experience for me. And this relates to something I'm reading right now. I'm reading a book for an interview titled Modern Tantric Buddhism. And in the section that I'm in right now, he's talking about the practice of chad. And it's the practice of being present with our inner demons in, in whatever ways they manifest. And the most common way that we can access that is through the fear of death. So in chad practice, traditionally, a lot of meditation is done in cemeteries or charnel grounds, mm. which in third world countries usually have bodies that are in various degrees of decomposition yes. that you can see. And so you can reflect on the fate of your own body. And so this is a very interesting area for me that I am currently feeling challenged by. Here you're speaking to a real human place. Uh, you know, I think this is a process of aging that, me too, uh, it, it's not one that I, I tend to focus on perhaps as much as you, but I'm well aware of it. And I don't know, the way that I, I seem to approach, of course, I'm pretty proactive when it comes to my body and doing a lot of exercise, seeing this, you know, my, my doctor of oriental medicine, I'm on lots of supplements, and it's working out really quite well. But I'm also quite aware of the fact, you know, like I was at a birthday party of a, of a friend who was just turning seven. And so all of her six and seven-year-old friends were there at the party. And at one point, I was reading them a Dr. Seuss book, and their attention was getting distracted. And at a certain point, one of the kids just pulled the book out of my hand. Another one pulled the glasses off of my face. And I'm lying on the floor in my stomach, and all ten kids were on top of me. And just laughing and having the time of their life. And about two or three days later, Tonio, I realized, like, oh, that feels like, you know, practically like my SI joint has gone out on the left side. And I started laughing because I thought, well, I totally did this to myself. But I, I also, there was that other part of me that was like what you were just saying, that, oh, here I am getting older. I don't have that resilience. Like if I had done this when I was in my 20s, probably wouldn't have been that big of a deal. But here I am in my 60s, and it is a big enough deal where it's like, well, I better get this you know, taken care of so that I don't have to feel like I'm going to have a problem. So it's a fascinating thing, and I guess I've grown. I don't know how comfortable I've gotten at this point. And tell me, because you're, you're quite good at considering all these other perspectives that are available out there, 
that I, I just figure this is part of the process that as we age, there's a certain physical deterioration because simply the bodies wear out. But there's a compensation, which I love, which is, well, to what extent do our inner lives become richer in the process so that we don't end up having to rely so heavily on the physical because we have this whole other garden that we have created in the process. Well, I think that's the gift that we're given as our body decays, our wisdom can potentially grow. Yeah. And I would say that the greater focus of my attention on this challenge that I described has, to a large degree, been amplified or put under the microscope because of this reading that I'm doing right now. Mm. And it's absolutely fascinating, this notion of working with our demons and the way he describes these demons, that they are manifestations. The term demon just refers to um, unresolved issues within us, particularly the, the things that challenge us in the way that you were asking me. Things yeah. like fear and anger and the passions that so far we do not have the wisdom to be able to control or control's not really the right term, but to embrace in the way yeah. that Rumi talks about in the guest house. Yes. Where we welcome all of the guests who show up. We welcome the demons and we feed the demons. We nourish them as being honored guests. And when we have unresolved issues with these feelings, these emotions, these demons, we reflexively relate to them as being a kind of a plague that terrifies us or makes us feel like we're out of control. And that's generally an experience that tends to terrify most people when, yeah. when we feel genuinely out of control. And what was beautiful in that, back to that Ram Dass documentary, of course, there's all this archival footage I mentioned, but then eventually there's and a present-day interview between the filmmaker himself and Ram Dass. Ram Dass, who has had, uh, I believe it was either a stroke or a heart attack, and he's now confined to a wheelchair. And there he was, and, and you could tell he was this embodiment, and it was so admirable for me to see this, this embodiment of someone who was just taking it as simply another experience, that he was still joyful, he was still Ram Dass, he was certainly has slowed down quite a bit, and you know there's half of his body really isn't you know, like he can't use his right arm, for instance. Uh, but to see that he was really living the very precepts that he had presented in all of this archival footage of it's just an experience. We just you know we have this body; it's the container, and then eventually we get to lose the container, and we get this whole other experience of freedom that happens in this other journey called death and beyond. Yes. That reflects back on something that, that we talked about weeks ago, about having the commitment and intention and desire and motivation to keep our heart open in the face of anything that arises. And that's a very tantric practice, to stay present with whatever is happening in the moment. Yes, and so that's why going back to that original question I had to you about our edges, 
that this is where, of course, I know that I would struggle as well and will struggle probably as well, which is, you know, my own fear of am I really prepared to be facing this particular edge, whatever that might be. And it could be, you know, the death. It could be, you know, like my mom is still alive, but she's in her 90s. She's now 94. And there is a certain edge there, too, of like, so what will this life be like without her presence and without... I spoke to her only a couple nights ago on the telephone. Yes, exactly. These are the challenges that life presents us and what emerges connects us with that infinite realm of the unknown in magical and inconceivable ways because we don't know what we'll gain from whatever loss we encounter. And I'd say that one of the things I've been learning is that with every loss that we experience, we also gain something profound and new. Yes. And tell me, I think there's a certain brilliance, and tell me if if this is how it's showing up in your life as well. I, I think of it sometimes, like I did a show back here in New Mexico a few weeks back, which is about this idea of training and whatever practices, things that we do to train, and that life will continually give us feedback as far as how far along our particular training we have come. And, and, and will basically tell us, like, oh, there's more work to do, or, oh, it looks like you're doing pretty well on this and things are flowing just fine. And there's a certain brilliance to that in, in terms of that setup. Do you notice it that way as well? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I was referring to earlier in, in the sense that things are unfolding continually. And if we stay present with it, we are essentially availing ourselves to the gifts that can that can be unearthed in the process like there's the metaphor of of digging through the pile of yeah and how that can be a very unpleasant experience and yet farmers know very well that if you want to increase fertility you have to use these elements these distasteful elements you know, in an alchemical, tantric sort of way to create the fertility or the kind of experience or the freedom that we are aspiring to. You know, it's, it's like that little verse in Machado's poem, uh, you know, last night I was, I was sleeping, oh, marvelous error, and I dreamt that I made gold out of all of my failures. And to me, that's what life is. That was another thing that that occurred to me this morning is that our life is a parade of mistakes and errors and failures. And yet, if we are present and attentive with that ongoing process, there's so much we can learn. And even if we're not present and attentive, eventually we can become present and attentive and still reap the wisdom, the gifts, or the jewels that exist in those piles of sh**. Yeah. If you're willing to do the work of digging into it, and it's an unpleasant experience to dig, to do that work of digging into the sh** or digging into our shadows, you know, the shadow realms, those unknown places within us that in the past we have been very uncomfortable with, and that's the reason why we kept them in the shadows. Yeah. And yet, all wisdom traditions, all great teachers tell us 
that's where the real jewels lie. That's where the real treasure lies. Well, and there's that setup again that I find so brilliant that all the material is right here at our hands that I don't necessarily, although I think one can certainly get value from a workshop, things like that. Oh, absolutely. I think we can get value from anything. Exactly. We should never discount anything. In fact, we can get value out of the things that everybody else condemns as being complete bullshit. Because or we even can, complete, you know, mundane life. Even things that are completely wrong and false, we can learn great lessons from. We can actually gain great wisdom from things that are completely false just by the realization of how they are false and also the process of how we realize that they were false. So tell me, when you go to bed at night, Tonio... Do you usually end up reflecting on whatever happened that day, whether it was an interview or not? And do you sort of take a tally in terms of, so what ground was gained or lost in the course of that day? I would say no, probably not. I mean, sometimes I probably do, but often by the time I go to, to sleep, to bed, I either will read or... I will just be like, I'm just ready for bed. I don't even want to read. Right. I think it's a wonderful ritual to look at our day and to give thanks for whatever occurred during the day. I, I don't have much in the way of organization. Whatever organization I have developed is in preparing for the interviews that I do on the show. That's where I have cultivated an organized approach. Just yeah. so that I can throw it all away, like the jazz musician who practices and practices so that when the time comes, he can throw it all away and improvise freely. And isn't that a wonderful metaphor for freedom? Yeah. That you do the work, you do the deep, hard work, and then you can let it all go. And that reminds me of an experience that I had, which relates to something that you said about what Ram Dass said. Back many, many years ago when I was doing LSD, at the end of an experience, you know, after a, a magical, enlightening experience, I would ask, what can I bring back that I will be able to remember and relate to from not being high? And every single time I got the exact same message to just relax, just relax, mm. deeply and softly and profoundly, just relax. For me, what it meant was that there was nothing I needed to strive for. And I've been gradually coming to this realization for all these 40 plus years that everything I need, I already am and is already fully present. All the awakening, all the freedom that I seek is already here. Just relax, just relax. Just relax and allow it to be what it already is. And what an incredibly challenging thing that is to do in this life, in this world. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lovely simplicity to it. You know, I've been speaking to 
my younger brother, and he's like wondering what he's going to do after he's retiring. And he keeps talking about doing rather than being. And I keep trying to remind him, you know, life always fills in, and life always, even in our solitude, brings us whatever it is we need to, whether it's you're looking for joy, whether you're looking for challenges. And I never had even considered this idea until recently, Tonya, which is that life itself is far more present than I can probably be to life. I try to meet it sometimes, but usually I get embroiled in my own thoughts, my own traumas, whatever. But life is always so present. It's the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio. And I'm being interviewed by Rick Halterman, author of Curriculum of the Soul. And we recorded this interview immediately before Thanksgiving this past year. You know, life is always so present, you know, whether it's giving us our immediate feedback, whether it's giving us whatever, so that I, I try to reassure my brother, it always fills in. That's one thing you don't ever have to worry about. And we fail at that continually, miserably, and yet that opportunity is always there. It's always present. No matter how much we fail, it's never held against us, and we need not hold it against us and it would be so much better for us if we did not hold it against ourselves so that we could freely allow ourselves to avail ourselves of that wonderful moment when we do succeed for that moment in just relaxing and surrendering and letting go fully into this moment. Well, speaking of freedom, you just mentioned it. You know, Ram Dass had this image in the film where he was talking about death, and he was saying, you know, think of death as like finally taking off the pair of shoes that have fitted you too tightly all your life. But I also think of that the very thing you just mentioned. Once we pull the judgments out, once we pull out the false beliefs, again, we take off the tight shoes, and there's all this freedom to what we can do in our lives. Yes, I love that metaphor of taking off the tight shoes. Well, this incredible gift of having a body. And again, in that Ram Dass documentary, he talks about the next great adventure, which is death and beyond. Right, which we have no idea what it'll be like. Even, even those of us who have interviewed people or listened to people or read books by people who have died and had amazing experiences and then come back to tell us about them, we still don't know what it'll be like for us and we don't know because those people are having threshold experiences so we don't know what it'll be like you know when we're fully immersed into the other side and wherever that takes us into the light of that mercy or whatever metaphor we might attempt to use to describe the infinite well i guess if i was to use a more personal metaphor it would be that can you imagine being completely doused with unconditional love? And, and that's only something I can handle in my head. I don't know what that would feel like in my body. Uh-huh. Well, I've had experiences of that in ways that I don't know if I could characterize it as being in my body. They were experiences where I was drawn 
from my physical perspective, deep, deep down inside of myself, where I entered a space of total, exquisite, unconditional peace and safety beyond the dualities of safety and non-safety that were just so deeply profound. But I suspect that those experiences are experiences where we are somehow free from the gravity of our experience in our bodies. You know, you're pointing towards a question that I've been thinking about of asking you, which is, there are moments in my own life where I can feel this cherishing for being alive. It doesn't happen all the time, but you know, in fact, I, there's even a phrase I, I use sometimes. It's like the luminescence of the ordinary. But there's such a cherishing for being alive. I'll see it sometimes, you know, and, and, and it'll be, somehow it gets reflected to me, say, if I'm watching a film, if I'm hearing a certain kind of music, that sort of thing, and this cherishing shows up, and I'm like, this is it. This is it. Can you, do you have moments like that in your own life? Well, I have all kinds of moments in my life that are... Many of them are inexplicable or impossible to really put into language, and that's where metaphors are born, as an attempt to, and poetry as well, as an attempt to put into words that we can share, that we can lovingly share from our heart to others of some magical or mystical or deeply profound experience that we've had that we don't really know how to effectively put into words, but we are inspired enough and care enough and are moved enough to do our damnedest best to do. So, well, and that's why, of course, I mentioned art, because I think art is the language that can, you know, if, if there's anything that can attempt to try and describe the ineffable, that would be art. So, for instance, I know you're well-versed with music, is there, are there pieces of music that still to this day, whether it has to do with grief or joy or whatever, are there pieces of music that you still go back to and say, yes, I needed to be reminded of that feeling, or you're still thrilled to hear it as if you heard it for the first time? Um, there are definitely pieces of music that move me when I hear them. The only ones I can really think of are the music of Arvo Perret when it comes oh, yes. to grief. To grief and, and, the un, and the mystery that lies on the other side of grief or that lies at the heart of grief. And I think there isn't necessarily a distinction between what lies at the heart of grief and what lies at the other side of grief because I, I think that they, they occupy the same space beyond our normal sense of comprehension of such things. And grief is such an interesting place because I, I guess I've always felt that we grieve to the extent that we loved. And when yes. we get down to that loving, we're in that very interesting place. We just had a conversation with a group back here in Taos about this, which was connection seems to really help define, at least for us individually, the very texture and fabric of our souls what we connect to, because whatever it is we connect to, that's where we find our loving is showing up. Yes, and 
the deeper we connect and open ourselves to the fullest experience of grief that we are having, I think that connects us directly to the corresponding level of love. Because I think they're inseparable. I think they're inseparable. Yeah. On our way into, you know, the beginning of entering into grief, it doesn't feel that way. But when we are fully immersed in grief, it has all the magic and splendor of the deepest sense of love. And I wonder, and, and tell me your thoughts on this, Tonyo. I wonder if there's, I mean, I, I know that initial phase of grief you're talking about. You know, the Hawaiians have this idea that energetic cords are created between whatever we connect with, particularly with another human being, and they call them aka, a.k.a. aka cords. And whenever, say, a person dies, then those cords no longer have the reciprocal energy coming back from that person. And so we feel that in a very tangible way. But this other place you just mentioned is so interesting to me. I wonder if there's almost an astonishment that when we get to those and fully let ourselves be exposed to that place of grief, there's an astonishment of, of to the extent that we were capable of loving whoever this other person was or whatever this other thing was. You know, I, I think that is such a profound thing that often we don't discover the depth of our love until we've had the opportunity to grieve the experience of losing it. And, yeah. and once we've done that, the realization is, is that not only have we not lost it, but we've actually gained so much more. Yes. In fact, I think it was Rilke who used that expression, and, and he was talking about that we need to go to those places of sadness. That was the word, or at least that was the translation. But he said, because we're always so surprised at you know, our astonished emotions that when we all of a sudden we're like, how did I get here? How did this whole overwhelming feeling show up? And we're realizing, oh, there's really greater depths than I even imagined inside there. Yes, and I want to go back a little bit, back to the experience that, you know, the beginning stages of grief, because I don't want us to gloss over that too quickly, because I think it's really important to more fully acknowledge the discomfort of that experience. It's so easy to quickly jump into the glories, you know, at the other end of it. But I'm reminded of a conversation that I had with someone here at the college on one of my shows where she was talking about, this was, I think this happened on, on Valentine's Day and we were talking about love. And she described when we separate from somebody or we lose somebody that we're deeply attached to, that we deeply love, that our hearts have grown together that we have almost physical blood vessels that have grown together, that have connected our hearts together. So on a very profound level, energetically and emotionally, our hearts have grown together with an intricate system of blood vessels that connect us. And so when that separation occurs, they literally get ripped apart 
and yeah. we are left with these dangling, bleeding arteries. Exactly. It's like, wait a minute, you know, my hands that used to be able to touch this person, now my hands are empty. How did that happen? Yes, and my heart that was so full of love and joy and the love and joy of having this other person's love and energy coursing through my own heart on a continual basis, that is now ripped apart and I am utterly destroyed. My world is literally ripped asunder and I have no idea how I can go on with all my energy, my blood, my passion, my joy is all leaking out of me onto the floor and I am utterly devastated and I just don't even see how I can live beyond this. Yeah, so that opening line of Rilke's poem, Who Will You Mourn, Heart? You know, that basically now that, now that everything's been lost, what is there left to mourn now that everything's been lost? To be at that place of desperation. Yes. In fact, beyond desperation at that point. And I know, you know, and I've heard reports, and actually you may have more, more experience in this terrain because you've interviewed so many people, but I know that there are certain, for instance, older relationships, you know, people that have had, you know, long-term partners that, for instance, a wife has had whatever um, happened and, you know, physical ailment, then they end up dying sometimes within a few weeks or months the husband or other partner checks out because, like, well, there's no reason to continue on without my beloved. And, In other words, dying yes, of a broken heart. Right, and how merciful it is to allow oneself to go that way. Yeah, and I don't know if this is the case for you, Tonio, but I would like you to speak to it. I know for me, at the end of at least... And these were, and I have to admittedly say, from this perspective here at the present time, these were codependent relationships that I had been in long ago in my past. And at the ends of those relationships, there was such a devastation that I really wasn't sure I could go on. Like I described to you in our last talk together about, you know, getting to that place of even contemplating suicide. And I realized part of that was my own abandon of, of myself. But I also felt there was this other piece, too, to the extent that I had really loved this other person in the relationship. There was a part of me like, oh, gosh, can I even do this again? You know, that this was so, this was so much a part of me, and now it's gone. Mm -hmm. But wasn't that so wonderful? Oh, in retrospect, yes. But and at the time, it was, uh, I mean, I was wondering how I would make it through each day. Yes, right. It goes back to that, that metaphor of our hearts and all the blood vessels and arteries literally being ripped apart so that we, in a sense, we experience a kind of bleeding to death emotionally. And, and that's where I, I learned a lot about solitude in the process during that because that's where I was learning so much in the solitude that I could really reflect upon it and particularly look at my part of the dance and and own those pieces, good or bad, and say like, hmm, okay, so are there things that I want to do to change that? Is that a process that was similar for you as well? Oh, absolutely. And I would also like to say that from, you know, being on this side of things, 
and I'll also acknowledge how easy it is to say this from this perspective, but codependence is still a, a wonderfully beautiful thing because we have so much to learn from that. Absolutely. And at the same time, I'm wondering, is there a curiosity inside of you? Because I know you're inherently a curious person. What would be a healthy, dependent relationship? What might that look like? And, you know, and I guess there is that part of me, and I don't know if this is a longing or a curiosity or a combination, whatever, of, so what would it be like? Because, you know, we hear that term true love out there. And, and I think a lot of times that can end up in sort of, I don't know, mainstream kind of places. But what would it be like to experience? Because I've seen that connection, although I've not seen that many what I would consider functional relationships that I could use as an example. But what would be, because I know I've experienced a true love when it comes to, you know, the arts, when it comes to friends, things like that. What would it be like for that in an intimate relationship? Is there a curiosity for you as well in that regard? Well, of course. But I think that that notion of true love or the possible experience of true love is a very personal and subjective thing that's unique to each person. That, oh, yeah. That one particular idealized version of it or, or appearance of it, while it can be very seductive, may not fit in our lives and may not even ring completely true. It, it just may be very seductive in the same way that, let's say, the American dream is seductive or, or making a million dollars is seductive. It's not necessarily going to be fulfilling to us in the end. And perhaps will just prove to be another complete mistake on our part. Another illusion. Another illusion, which is a wonderful thing to experience because it's another opportunity to learn. And, oh, yeah. And to and, um, become you know, more one, free. And when I say that idea of true love, I'm not thinking of it in that general term. I'm thinking of it in the idiosyncratic, more the modern term, you know, when, when the psychotherapist John Wellwood came up with this idea about relationships. He said, you know, we're living in this wild time, you know, that where relationships in the past were based on function, now they're based on feeling. And literally, every relationship, doesn't matter whether you're straight, gay, whatever, that... <clears throat> Every relationship now has the responsibility, literally, to make up their own set of rules and guidelines and keep improvising as it goes along, which will not necessarily have anything to do with any other relationship out there. Exactly. That was my point. And I also love and have great appreciation for John Wellwood and his work. Oh, he's, well, in fact, he has that great essay for anyone who wants to check it out on the charnel ground. And that's what our relationships are about, going to that channel ground and how much can we learn, you know, from the composting of these previous relationships from those to bring it forward, should we decide to get into maybe, you know, part of my own process, and this is my edge, of wanting to sort of cement to whatever extent I can this relationship first and foremost with myself. 
and make sure that that is solid so I don't abandon myself in the future should I be back in another relationship. <laughs> then I can bring that to the table and hopefully with someone who has their own version of that same thing, that they're, they're loving themselves as a priority and they can bring that to the table. And then that third thing, and that's what Robert Bly talks about, that third element can then be created and to what extent will that be nurtured mutually. Well, if only we had an infinite amount of time to, to perfect ourselves. <laughs> but, but that's not the way the world works. The, the way the world works is that we get to live our lives, and hopefully we have the courage to live honestly and fully on the very edge, on that precipice of inevitable disaster that could happen at any moment. <laughs> well, I have this belief that the soul is arranging it all anyhow. And that includes the failures, that includes me getting stuck in my default mode, all that kind of stuff, but also bringing the very people and situations to me that are the perfect things for me to learn from and to grow from. Do you, do you share that point of view? Um, you know, I feel very ambivalent about the notion that the soul orchestrates things. Uh -huh. And I honestly don't know. I have no idea. I am not qualified or have that insight. To me, I like the notion that the soul is with us on this ride and that it doesn't want to know what the outcome is either, that it has the same kind of curiosity that we have and relish for the magic of unfolding possibility that it wants to live, it wants to live fully. And if it knew what was going to happen and if it, it had the power to orchestrate things in that way, that would take all the fun out of life for the soul itself. So that's well, my I'm, objection know, the way that I'm, I'm to presenting that. Is the soul as a channel to the divine. Okay, so that and, its orientation and that the divine is... The divine is just simply setting up all these circumstances, and, and the soul is part of the orchestration of those circumstances, has no idea how we're really going to react ultimately. Okay, so yep. what I get is what the soul is doing and what it's it's acting as like a compass and it's always aiming for true north which is the divine and it doesn't care how we get there it's willing to suffer all and any of the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune as long as we're moving in that direction overall yes and at the same time i also think the soul has its own you know, it, it, its own sort of way of playing with us, too, and saying, you know, you can go ahead and do this, like, heroin thing for a while, Rick, if you want to, and I'm just going to check out until you decide to come back. Do you think the soul checks out? Oh, I do think that, that there are times, not that it would check out exactly, that it sort of sits on the sideline watching. Oh, okay, yeah. To me, I can't imagine the soul abandoning us. No, no, no. But I do think that the soul can be ignored. Oh, we can definitely ignore the soul. That's, that's, we spend 99.99999% yeah. of our lives ignoring the soul. Yeah, exactly. And of course the soul doesn't take that personally at all. Not at all, because the soul being part of you know, the higher self, really, that it's sort of like watching you know, the conscious self and the basic self 
do its little twist and turns, whatever it is, get angry at the person in the parking lot or any of that kind of stuff, and then is always you know happy to have it you know have its help enlisted when we finally get desperate enough and say, you know, I could really use some help here right now because I just cannot figure this out. Like when we go back to that grief place, that's the place where I've enlisted the soul, enlisted the divine, and say. I'm really getting stuck here because now I'm starting to feel a desperation of like, is there much point of even living at this moment? So it's like when we, when we get to that place where our cup has been completely emptied, and generally the only way our cup is completely emptied and becomes fully receptive is when it's shattered. And, yeah. and that's the moment when, because nature abhors a vacuum, that yeah. something has to come in to fill it. And if we've done enough work, enough of a certain kind of work, then the only thing that can come in to fill that kind of space would be the soul or the divine at yeah. that point. Mm -hmm. Because we have been so shattered that even all of our negative baggage, our, our own self-hatred and our own self-judgment and all the, all the heavy baggage that has kept us so glued to the earth through that kind of negative gravity, it has all been shattered along with the cup. Yeah, so then we're in that beautiful, glorious place of surrender. Of, of emptiness, yeah. which is the essence of surrender. The mm -hmm. essence, I mean, the emptiness that by virtue of the nature of how nature abhors a vacuum, it's an emptiness that is by its very nature full because it cannot be truly empty in the nihilistic sense that being empty is actually being in the most profound way full. Yes. Yeah, now we're, now we're back to samadhi. Yes. Exactly. Or something it, like that. Yeah. And to go back to that original idea that I was presenting, there's, I think it's St. John of the Cross, but I'm not sure. There's a poem somewhere in the book where he talks about that if, and he uses the word God, but we can do divine. You know, it was like imagining our lives as from an overview perspective, and that the divine has arranged um, our whole lives like pieces on a chessboard, and, and, and basically what's the intelligence behind that, and that the intelligence is that all those pieces are there to serve our growth should we decide to make those particular moves. So that's that orchestration I'm kind of talking about. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, you know, again, this is this larger view that I don't think I quite have the capability to understand, but the energetics of what we create in our particular field through our beliefs and our judgments and our practices and training, you know, good nutrition, whatever, uh, bad nutrition, that it creates a certain energetic that we're attracting the very experiences that are there to, well, if we want to learn from them, we can. If we don't, we won't. And we're going to learn something anyway. Oh, yeah. It's like you said that if we ignore things long enough, we're going to get kicked in the ass, or we're oh. going to get our ass kicked. Yes. And in, in your case, you know, and I'll use this just as an example, 
for instance, I don't see that celebrity has any hook for you. And, and so it's a very interesting thing. So you don't seem to have to want to go down that particular path as far as, oh, I have to prove myself to, you know, to get that kind of approval or validation or that not, kind of Not in that life. way. I still have a craving for recognition. I mean, I, I, want, I still want to be approved by my mother and father, metaphorically projected out into the world around me. I have no illusions, you know, that public fame is going to give me anything in that way. I mean, to me, that, that is completely empty in the most vacuous way. I'm looking for meaningful approval and recognition, which is actually equally vacuous. It just feels much more meaningful to me. It's still a demon of desire. It's still an illusion that I think I, I need or want. Yeah, well, getting the love that we always you know, felt that we deserved. And that know, we didn't up, get. I know exactly how that... Or that we believe we did not get. Yeah. Well, Tony, as always, it's been a pleasure. Yes, as always, it has been a total pleasure. Thank you so much. <laughs> so thank you for giving me this opportunity, because I had the best time. Me too. And until next time. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Rick Halterman. He's the author of Curriculum of the Soul, a wonderful, wonderful book. I highly recommend it. His website, curriculumofthesoul.com. And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week. <laughs>